Hey everyone, this is Jeff Benjamin again with another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm here today with my good friend Bruce Kelly. He likes to be called BK because I think he's a Burger King fan. And we have a special guest this week, Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar. And uh, after we're done with Christine, we've got a special, special guest, which we'll tell you about in a second, so stay tuned. First of all, how you doing, Bruce? I'm great, Jeff. How are you doing today? I'm doing as usual, just living the dream down here in North Carolina. No complaints. <laughs> Let's bring on Christine. How you doing, Christine? Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, we, we want to talk to you about your annual portfolio makeovers. I think you've been doing it for about 10 years. Can you give us a little idea of what this is about? Where did this start? What was the idea? What are you looking for with these makeovers? So the idea was to try to show individual investors what their portfolios, what some common portfolio mistakes might be, and then also show how to correct them. And initially, I think I started on this quite narrowly because my focus for a lot of my career had been on investment selection. I had worked on Morningstar's fund analysis team for many years and eventually headed up our U.S. team. So I think my mission was pretty narrow and I was focusing on the portfolio. As I have done this a little more, and I guess as I've focused more on financial planning matters in my work, I would say I've broadened out and have begun to troubleshoot other problematic areas of people's plans. So we've had people with estate planning issues or people with some tax issues or people who have a pension that their spouse has that will, that will cease when the spouse passes away, things like that. And so I've broadened my purview a little bit, but the basic idea is to try to illustrate common portfolio situations, common portfolio problems, and how they can be rectified with financial planning and, and portfolio planning. What are some common problems that you see you do you oh, this is another question i want to ask you first uh, you you do five makeovers a year how many submissions do you get when you put out the call for these things we get hundreds and i have to say our marketing team is a good help in terms of trying to recruit people who are interested are they from advisors christine or where no. do you get these they come from individual investors who might be readers of morningstar.com so these are typically kind of do-it-yourself investors. Some of them may have financial advisors who they're trying to sort of say, well, my financial advisor has recommended X. What do you think of this investment mix? But the vast majority <laughs> are people who have done it on their own. And what kind of money do they have? Are they high net worth investors or no, more mass affluent or what? I would say a typical portfolio level would be sort of in the, in the realm of one to three million is kind of a typical range for, for our users. I have seen portfolios as large as like 15 million getting submitted, in which case I'm like, you definitely need a professional advisor. You don't need, um, you don't need me doing this. But most of the portfolios cluster in kind of that, I would say one to three million range. And the age band is very consistent across submissions. We might have a few outliers, but a lot of it is from people who are kind of in that late 50s to late 60s sort of life stage where they're thinking about what's next, thinking about whether retirement is realistic or if they've embarked on retirement. 
they want some help on what their portfolio should look like at this life stage, especially because, you know, we've had this challenging period for retirees where yields have been really, really low. So the sort of that traditional formula of building an income centric portfolio just isn't working. So a lot of people are looking for another opinion on what their in retirement portfolio should look like. Right. Do you, do you know if these people have financial advisors? I mean, I know you said that some of them are looking for a second look, but do most of I mean, I'm just thinking at this point in somebody's life, you said late 50s to late 60s, they have a million or more assets. And it's just hard to imagine that this is their first kind of portfolio checkup. Yeah. Well, I have to say, Jeff, in many cases, my advice is here's my sort of back of the envelope recommendation for you. But I do think that you need some financial advice on an ongoing basis. So oftentimes I, I hope that that's something I impart is to get a financial advisor. Sometimes I even help people find a financial advisor based on you know what they've told me. Many times these are people who have been strictly DIY investors and they do need help figuring out, especially decumulation. I happen to think that that's just so, such a more difficult and complicated problem than the retirement accumulation years. Yeah. What, tell me about the, any themes that you've seen over the years and especially this year. A couple of themes I would call out. One is that four of the five portfolio makeovers were too equity heavy in my view. So my after portfolio called for a little bit of a reduction in the portfolio's equity exposure. It's natural. We've come through a long running bull market where trimming stocks has not been rewarded for the better part of a decade. So it's natural that people would have overly equity heavy portfolios at this life stage. But and what, um, what was that percentage? What was that concentration? Well, it really depends on the situation, but in, just in give us a for example. Well, I think in one case, the, it might have been a retiree with like a 70% equity portfolio. I see. People in their 70s, so arguably a little bit too much in equities, certainly given their spending rate, especially. So that's an example. But that's a common problem. Another issue would be something I mentioned, this idea of creating very income-centric portfolios that, to me, aren't appropriately diversified. And I think this is something financial advisors probably encounter a lot, where you have these investors who naturally gravitate to very high-income-producing securities, whether stock or bond and end up with portfolios that tend to kind of all dance in the same direction, depending on the market environment. So that was another consistent theme. Another thing that I often run into are portfolios that do have fixed income exposure, but it's equity-like fixed income exposure, where maybe it's that multi-sector bond fund or the junk bond fund, where I explain, well, yes, that's a bond fund, but it will tend to act like your equity portfolio. It won't deliver appropriate ballast for you in an equity market shock. Christine, does that mean that getting back to the prior point, are people overly invested in dividend paying stocks? Yes. I would say that there is a tendency in some cases to have too much in dividend paying stocks. Those are very popular with financial advisors, (laughs) by the way. Well, and they're very popular with individual investors. Right. One portfolio that I saw 
was a very active do-it-yourself investor, a, a woman who was the main financial decision maker in her household. Her husband really wasn't interested. And she was running, in my view, the equivalent of a dividend-focused mutual fund with the, these portfolios of individual stocks that she had, had built. In fact, she had literally 100 individual positions. Oh, that's too that much. Was, it's oh. too much to me. How given do you keep that, track of 100 stocks? That's the thing. And she really had great self-awareness in that she recognized she may not be equipped to do this forever. And her husband had no interest in doing this. Well, wasn't so, that convenient for her? Right. (laughs) Hey, buddy, you're a lot of help with the old family income here, you know? We were able to come up with a portfolio that did, I I understood that she naturally gravitated to dividend-paying stocks. We came up with a couple of ETFs that, in terms of the complexion of the portfolio, was quite similar to what she had, but with obviously a lot fewer moving parts. What was that conversation like with her? For you, like what she was she was so grateful, which was wonderful. The good but did part she about get it, it, or how did it go? Like, how did you talk to her about it? She a hundred percent got it, and she was she was really cognizant of the fact that she may not be able to do this forever. We did carve out roughly ten percent piece of her portfolio for her for her to continue to manage with individual stocks. And I think that this is something financial advisors probably often deal with with their clients where the client maybe has a desire to be hands-on with a portion of the portfolio. So she had this roughly 10% piece that she was going to continue to stay actively engaged with. And it wasn't enough to make or break their plan. So I thought that that was a happy medium. I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend going a lot higher, but I think that was a good resolution to that particular situation. One of the things I like that you, you do, and and you and I've talked about this, Christine, is the, you focus on simplification. You try and make these things, these portfolios a lot less complex because for a bunch of reasons, one, it's easier to manage, it's easier to to monitor. And um, also, as you mentioned to me, if one spouse is taking care of the portfolio and that spouse happens to pass away first, the other spouse oh, is, a mess. Is, could could be confused. And that's a and mess. That happens all the time, too. More of a mess. It does. Another thing that influences my thinking on that front, I, I like simplicity overall, but you know, I had a dad who experienced cognitive decline later in life. And I was his investment buddy and his investment helper throughout his life. And I was there as a backstop for him. I think about people who don't have that, which is one reason why I really like to try to reduce the number of parts in almost every one of these plans that I touch. Do people usually follow your advice? Do you find, I mean, and, and Bruce, you mentioned the point, it was a good point saying, you know, what was that conversation like? But, yeah. you know, full disclosure here, uh, I was one of Christine's makeovers this year. And I I was interested for all kinds of reasons. I thought I've you looked Christine. a little different, Jeff, you know? <laughs> well, no, I, I've known Christine for a long time. You had the and, in your yeah. hair and the beard all done and everything. What a nice makeover. Yeah, it, true. All that. <laughs> But I was looking, I was interested for a bunch of reasons. I, you know, the makeover was a pretty good deal getting the portfolio makeover, but also, you know, well, I just want to see a lot what of the changes, man. You like. moved to a new house and all that kind of stuff, you know? So, yeah, I had a lot, a lot, you know, you have a lot going on and a little bit of the usual, but still it was, it was good to get that at fix. And, you know, I was wide open to whatever you had to say, Christine, and I 
think I've mostly followed your advice. I've spent the past several weeks kind of adjusting things. You can't do these things real fast. But I'm wondering if you if you find that people, I guess if they're going to you for this kind of a makeover, they're not going to say, well, you're wrong. You don't know what, why would I listen to you? <laughs> you know, you're not going to fight with you about it. Yeah. You know? ever, has anyone ever said to you, you know, hey, Christine Benz, you're wrong. This is terrible. I'm not doing this or anything like that. Has anyone ever come back at you like that, Christine? You know, there was a really interesting one. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before where um, the person had a very modest withdrawal rate. He was retired and had a very conservative portfolio, unnecessarily conservative in my view, but not a not a risky plan. What does that mean? All bonds or or what? He had way more than I want to say, like 60 percent fixed income and cash and 40 percent bonds. I believe he was in his 70s, maybe late 60s. And given his spending rate, which was very, very low, he wasn't he he wasn't wrong. But it was interesting because I naturally had this hat on where I was thinking, well, you know, we could get a better return here with this portfolio. You can afford to take more risk. And his pushback was, you know what? I really know myself. I know my need to have peace of mind. And I think I'm going to kind of stick with this more conservative mix. And I, for me, that was just kind of a good check on, you know, our natural inclination. Like, yeah, maybe I made it better. I improved its return potential, but he knew what was enough for him. And for me, that was just really eye-opening. I think that there are people like that where the goal isn't return maximization. They have enough. They're comfortable living within their means. He had bought, you know, he bought a, I think a car like at the end of the the previous year and said he planned to keep it like for the next 15 years or something like that. He was a very frugal person. Right. And I appreciate that. There is something to be said for that. That's fascinating because finances, your finances are so personal. Absolutely, they are the mo- one of the most personal things about. Uh, yeah, and, and that's about, what, about uh, as you were saying about you know, people come to you with their portfolios and basically open everything up to you, but they still have their. There's a reason that they're they're invested the way they are, and that was my case. I I have I'm one of these people that had seventy percent allocated to equities. I'm not a young man anymore. I'm oh, I'm still in my twenties, but you know, I'm getting closer <laughs> yeah, to retirement. About Jeff now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and but How my thing was Jeff's portfolio, Christine. Come on. <laughs> Go ahead. Break it down, Christine. I don't care. Well, actually I thought, you know, as as we talked about, Jeff, your equity heavy portfolio was not far off of what I would recommend. It seemed in the right ballpark given your proximity to retirement. So uh-huh. That didn't seem to be an issue. I did, you know, pick up on the fact that you're a little bit of a hobbyist, I would say, with the investments <laughs> where you you like to dabble a little bit. So there were some positions that seemed like kind of like how much Bitcoin did he have? <laughs> no Bitcoin. <laughs> he he did have some gold though. I will yeah. say that. Well, well gold, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, to me, the thing that's fascinating about Jeff is that he writes about investing right. as part of his job. It's it's right. his living. So of course this is gonna seep into his thinking about his money. I write about how brokerage firms explode, you know, from selling bad products more yeah. than anybody else here at Investment News. So I have a different approach perhaps. You know? Yeah. No, for sure. What what we work on in our life's ex- experiences influence what what's in our portfolio. But 
I mean, I, I guess speaking of frugality, that was one thing I really loved in talking about Jeff's plan was just that he said that his main tool he felt it, as he sort of ventured down the road of thinking about retirement was that he knew himself to be a really frugal person. And that is one of the best, you know, sort of salvations for any financial plan is that if you know that you can be flexible about your living expenses, well, that's huge. I worked on another portfolio this year. I think it was roughly a $3 million portfolio. I didn't think that there was an adequate consideration for the spending rate. And so that was one of my pieces of advice. Like, you need to look closely at this. You need to get some advice on what is the right amount for you to be spending. This seems like kind of a lot to me, um, given your asset level. And what was the response to, to that, to change your behavior, she, you know? She had not thought about it in that way, mainly because I, I think that she viewed her dividends as kind of free and was not counting that as part of her. Well, she wasn't counting it as part of her withdrawal rate, which is a common oh, issue, I think, where people right. think, oh, you know, I have a 3% dividend yield on my portfolio and I get to spend another whatever 3% over here and I'm right. still safe. And the answer is, well, you really don't. That comes up more than you might think. Yeah. The other thing I'd like to ask you about, Christine, is you mentioned a 3% withdrawal rate. I think you actually mentioned that in in my portfolio review. Is that the new 4%? Or is that just for <laughs> yeah. people like me that don't have enough money? No, it has nothing to do with your asset level, Jeff. I mean, you could still you could have $3 million and I would still think the key is if you're a new retiree, I think that sequence of return risk is a real consideration because we have really low bond yields today and we have not cheap U.S. equity valuations. And that combination, especially for people who are just embarking on retirement right now, argue for being a, at least being able to be really conservative if, in fact, bad stuff happens at the at the beginning of your retirement. So, you know, I do think that that being conservative or at least being able to be conservative is huge right now. And then where do you see this going forward bond allocations? I mean, how do people how do people keep 40, 30% in bonds when rates are when so no low and likely to stay low forever? I mean, are you do you see a point where you're just starting to say, hey, you're 75 years old and 80% in equities, that's where you got to be because that's the only place something's going to grow. Yeah, I think the key is, you know, when you move into drawdown mode, the challenge goes away from growth and, you know, needs, at least in part, needs to turn to how do we manage to keep this portion of the portfolio that I expect to draw for living expenses stable? And oftentimes that translates into having at least a significant portion of the portfolio staked in cash and bonds, low yields and all, simply because I think the risk of some sort of an equity market shock is real, especially given how great returns have been so far this year from U.S. stocks. So I think that retirees, pre-retirees need to make peace with the fact that that yields are really low and likely to stay that way for a while. Okay. Well, with that, 
We're going to let you get back to portfolio makeovers, Christine Benz, and all the other smart things you do over there at Morningstar. We appreciate you coming to spend some time with us. And maybe next year you can run uh, Bruce Kelly's portfolio through the ringer. Oh, and, my God. Uh, we can we can see what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds the, good. Thanks th so much. Thanks for the visit. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for having me on. Okay, now we're going to go over to our special, special guest, the man that is usually behind the scenes, making us all sound brilliant, Stephen Lamb, Director of Multimedia here at Investment News. He's going to tell us all about the... The brand ESG. new Director of Multimedia, Oh, yeah, the way. brand new. Just got yeah. a promotion this Just week, so uh, he's the big, man to big go to. shoes to, to fill. I'm filling in for the hot seat of uh, one Mr. Matt Ackerman. Yeah. Right. There you go. Well, Steve, you're here. You're going to tell us all about the ESG Summit and Film Festival. It's just wrapping up right now. Tell us all about that. Yeah, sure. So it just went down. It was virtual this year, of course, like, like everything is, which is cool. You know, we're able to send it around the globe. Last year, this is year two. Last year. Yeah, what uh, is this thing? The, just, tell, just tell us what it, what it is exactly. Sure, sure. That's a good question. Start big. So the ESG Film Festival is a way to celebrate and inspire stories of impact and ESG from around the world. And our goal is to, like I said, it's to inspire people who might be interested in this or they might have never heard of it before. So this just, doesn't, just isn't something for financial advisors, in other words. No, no, we want it to be for anyone. You know, I, I will say, as you can imagine, probably the world of ESG and impact you have on one hand, and the world of documentary filmmaking you have on the other hand, and they don't necessarily align all that often. <laughs> so I'll say it's a right. little bit tricky <laughs> to get <laughs> two films very that different did. pollinated pools. You got to cross. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's kind of exciting because when you find a film that works, it's really cool to see that. And it's it's awesome. And this is the second year we're doing this. This is the second year. And, you know, I was going to say, so last year we did it in person at a theater in Manhattan, same time of year, beginning of December. And it was a small theater. First first year we were doing it. And it's about 100 people, but it was standing room only. And 100 people is a lot of people, man, I think. It, it, yeah, it's not bad, you know. I go to a lot of conferences. So like I go to the Schwab Impact where you got 5,000 well, people and then you people. come here and yeah. you're like, all right, but it's, it's okay to be humble. But for but a first year of something? Yeah, it was, it was not bad. But when, man, I tell you, when the films started playing last year and you could feel the energy in the room just spike and it was so cool to see that and witness it because we had spent all year trying to get this thing off the ground and get it going and going through all the entries and, you know, we weren't sure how it was going to, how it was going to go or if people would even show up and, you know, because it's very different, right? It, this is not the normal financial no, services event. this is not what we event. usually do. This is not what No, no. So, so it's very different. Does. So yeah. to be there and feel that was like, it was so cool, you know, and it was so exciting and it was like, okay, we're onto something. Whose idea was it? This was the brainchild of my former boss, Matt Ackerman. Oh, wow. We um, started... A couple of years ago, he and I made a documentary in partnership with Steve Distante at Vanderbilt Securities, and it was to explore what is impact. And we presented that uh, at a meeting uh, at the UN on September eleventh. Yeah, on September eleventh of twenty eighteen. And so that documentary was my first 
experience with Impact or ESG. I'd frankly never heard of it before then. And, you know, we made the film, it took us six months to make the film. We went uh, all over the country. Matt took a film crew to Haiti and filmed there. So we went to other parts of the world, exploring different stories of impact. And it really just opened both of our eyes to what's possible. And it really lit a fire under us. We were really excited about it. It felt like this is a tool that anyone can use to make a change in the world in a really positive way. And many people probably don't know about it. And so we said, well, how can we show more people what this is all about and get them inspired to actually do something? Well, people love the movies, right? They love the movies. And so Matt said, Matt said, you know, let's have a film festival. Yeah. And we said, all right, well, that sounds insane. So let's do it. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's funny. You and Ackerman together, that's insane enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's true. They don't call us Team Extreme for nothing. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's funny. We made this uh, little Christmas video that year in 2018, just to say thank you to our friends and colleagues in the business who, who supported us throughout the year. And it was very silly, as that's what Matt and I do. And our uh, other former colleague, Audrey Rose Joseph, as well. Yes. And we made this silly video and we sent it around. And a man at the United Nations, Will Kennedy, who we'd uh, done some work with on that documentary, he saw it and said, guys, I want to work with you guys. That was great. It was, it was hilarious. Let's do something. And Matt said, well, I have an idea for you. We want to do a film festival. And the UN said, sure, let's do it together. So we... Um, Met with them a few times and and built a little collaboration together with Will at the Office of Partnerships, and we were off and running. So then it was like, what do we do? Right. <laughs> How do you make a film? Fa- I've never run a film festival. Matt's never run one. And uh, you know, our original idea was that <laughs> being filmmakers, we wanted to go make the films. And you know, so we put together this very ambitious plan, and it cost a lot of money. And our former boss, Mark Bruno, was very afraid. And <laughs> through <laughs> through some meetings with <sighs> folks at the UN, yeah. they said, "Well, why don't you guys make this a real festival and call for entries from other filmmakers so that you're not paying to make your own films, and it's going to be a more legit festival, right? And and you'll see what's out in the and world. And then what? People pay to submit or something like that? And then yeah, you underwrite it a little bit like that? Yeah, exactly. So we found a platform online and put a put, basically, it's not an ad, but a call for entries. And we didn't want to limit anyone, any filmmakers. You know, filmmaking is always very budget conscious. So we didn't want to limit them. So we didn't set a, a fee for entry, which was a big mistake. So we got 600 and I don't know, 30 entries the first year. And there was some great material. We wound up with a few really awesome films last year. Because the entry was free, we got a lot of stuff that was not great. I'll put it <laughs> politically correctly. Right, right, right. <laughs> Tell us about some of the films you, you saw this year and what were, what, were, what were really good, you know. What was good? Sure, sure. This year, I did not know what to expect because with COVID going on, could people leave their house? Could they make a film? And, you know, to be honest, a lot of the entries I got were a little bit bizarre. It was clear a lot of artists were locked in their apartments by themselves and it showed in the work. But we got some really great stuff. You know, my favorite film, ironically, the judges decided it didn't quite meet the uh, criteria for the festival. So it was the 
first, I guess you'd say, runner-up to the festival was a satire piece. And it's called the Ice Licking Society. And it's and it's from Iceland. And it's played absolutely straight-faced as a real documentary. And it's about a group of people, the ice lickers, who enjoy licking glaciers. Because it, <laughs> it, it brings them to nature, right? It, it, it's, there's nothing more. And it's, it's hysterical. It's very much in the, in the vein of like uh, Sounds like Spinal Monty Python Tap or something. Or, you know? Oh, yeah. It's just like Best in Show or Spinal Tap. And, and the point of it, the real point is that because of climate change, the glaciers are melting and they're losing their ability to lick to ice. Lick them. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so I loved the approach of that filmmaker. I well, thought I'm it was wondering, genius. Steve, if licking all those glaciers isn't contributing to climate change, we should look into <laughs> that. I mean, come on. Well, th- there's your climate change denier uh, side of the <laughs> argument, you know? There you go, there's right? It's all the liquor's guy. fault. If they'd stop licking, maybe it wouldn't yeah, uh, be a problem. Yeah, if they'd stop licking the damn icebergs, then they wouldn't be not on Bill O'Reilly. back in the freezer where it belongs. So which one, who won this year? And so the winning film, and it actually won the, so so we give out two awards. We have our, our a panel of judges that I put together, and they pick uh, what we call the best film. And then during the festival, we let the audience vote for their favorite, and we have an audience choice award. And this year they aligned, and that film was Flowers in the River. And it's about a business in India, and they use... The flowers from their religious festivals, which sure. are a major pollutant in this river, they go through tens of thousands Tons of, of flower flowers. petals, right? Flowers and Absolutely. flower petals. Yeah, yeah. And it's a major pollutant and no one cleans them up. But it's a sacred river. And so this gentleman said, well, what can I do about it? And he found a way to basically recycle the flowers. And he's turning that into a business. That's fascinating. So the film, the film is about that. It was directed by two uh, ladies from the United States. And yeah, it was a great film. It looked good. It, 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 it was that rare alignment of, an, of a social enterprise, you know, an, an actual impact business and someone who made a documentary about it. And how long was it? How long was it? Uh, that one was about six or seven minutes, I believe. All of our films, we keep them under eight minutes to keep it short. Can, can people still go somewhere to... to- Watch these films? Gosh, Jeff, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We are going to put the films on the Investment News website in the video page. We're recording this just behind the scenes. We're recording this. The festival just ended an hour ago. Uh So I will get these up. By the time this podcast launches, those films will be live on the website. And I'll include a link in the notes to this podcast. They should be in our daily newsletter too, at least the winning ones, you know? Absolutely. I I don't know why. uh, We'll definitely promote this in some way, shape or form. And I'll be pushing it out on my social media handle as much as I can. Yeah. We have all this content, you know, that it sits on the website where you have to push it out. Investmentnews.com and watch those ESG films. Yeah. uh, Please. Fun, entertaining. And uh, it is. Or last year's out too. I think it's, uh, they are. Yep. Yep. They are. So it's, it's, you know, it's some really cool stuff. And um, like I said, it's just, it's a little bit different than, than our usual content and the usual, you know, FinServe event. So it's, yeah. it's exciting to be a part of it. Well, good stuff, Stephen Lamb. Fantastic. Director of yeah. Things Excellent. Thank, and congratulations right. on the promotion. Next time I see oh, you in you. person, I will let you buy me a beer, if not oh, two. I, 
I <laughs> you will buy a round or three. Yes. Always uh, drink beers in threes because I think it's lucky. <laughs> that's how the giraffes drink beers. That's the law the in New York it, City. Yep. Whatever. That's, but, that's certainly uh, how I do it. Yeah. Anyway. Good stuff this week, guys. Uh, the special guest of Christine Benz and the special, special guest of Stephen Lamb, who comes out from behind the uh, curtain and shares his brilliance. Well, I'll share something. <laughs> Thank you, boys, for having me on the podcast today. It's a, it's a pleasure. I, for the audience out there, I produce these every week, so I sit and listen to them and with rapt attention, and it's fun to be a participant. Indeed. Thank you, sir. All right, Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, that means there's a, another episode of the Investment News Podcast for you to listen to. We, want, again, want to thank Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar, and Stephen Lamb, Director of Multimedia here at Investment News, our guests. And Mr. Lamb is also the producer of this podcast, and you can find it at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Our Twitter handles are at Benji Ryder and at BD News Guy. That's it for this week, and we'll be talking to you real soon. <laughs>